Judges 17, 1 to 13. There was a man named Micah who lived in the hill country Ephraim. One day he said to his mother, I heard you place a curse on the person who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from you. Well, I have the money. I was the one who took it. The Lord bless you for admitting it, his mother replied. He returned the money to her and she said, I now dedicate these silver coins to the Lord. In honour of my son, I will have an image carved and an idol cast. So when he returned the money to his mother, she took 200 silver coins and gave them to a silversmith who made them into an image and an idol. And these were placed in Micah's house. Micah set up a shrine for the idol and he made a sacred ephod and some household idols. Then he installed one of his sons as his personal priest. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. One day a young Levite, who had been living in Bethlehem in Judah, arrived in that area. He had left Bethlehem in search of another place to live, and as he travelled, he came to the hill country of Ephraim. He happened to stop at Micah's house as he was travelling through. Where are you from? Micah asked him. He replied, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm looking for a place to live. Stay here with me, Micah said, and you can be a father and priest to me. I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, plus a change of clothes and your food. The Levite agreed to this, and the young man became like one of Micah's sons. So Micah installed the Levite as his personal priest, and he lived in Micah's house. I know the Lord will bless me now, Micah said, because I have a Levite serving as my priest. This is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer. Loving Father, as we come to this difficult part of your scriptures, we pray that you would help us to understand why they are in the Bible and what it is that you speak to us about through them. Help us, Father, as we're confronted with this sin to realise your mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When the Apostle Paul said goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he told them that he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, he says, I told you the whole Bible and I skipped nothing. When I go to pick the bits that we have a look at as our sermons in our church, this is what I try and do as well. Which means that when we come to look at the book of Judges over an entire term, over nine weeks, it means that we will look at the whole of the book of Judges. And it'll mean that we'll also get to some bits that are hard to hear. Today we get to the most unsavoury bits of the book of Judges. In chapters 17 to 21 we hear about some episodes in the life of God's people that we really would prefer were never written. Or, or even more than that, that they never actually happened in the first place. But God wants us to know about these horrible events. And so it's right for us to spend time studying them together. But they are heavy going and they are confronting. The first half of today's Bible passage records a time when God's people blatantly embraced idolatry, distorting completely God's plan for how we should worship him. 
It's a disaster. And then the second half of today's Bible passage shows a truly awful display of immorality where we witness shocking sexual abuse that leads to utter chaos. As Barry Webb describes it in his book on Judges, it features, quote, the most appalling abuse of a woman in biblical literature and perhaps in any literature. I would prefer to skip over these chapters, but God has given it to us for our benefit and we need to trust him in that. And so I'm going to try and cover the material in a way that seeks to be sensitive to our congregation here. But I need to obviously be faithful to God's word. Because as Barry Webb has also said in these chapters, whilst it is not pleasant reading, if we read carefully, we will find that even here, God is present and therefore there is hope. God is present and therefore there is hope. So let's start with the first section where we see how it is that God's people spiral down into immorality from 17 verse 1. There was a man named Micah who lived in the hill country of Ephraim and one day he said to his mother, I heard you put a curse on the person who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from you. Well, I have the money. I was the one who took it. The Lord bless you for admitting it, his mother replied. It starts off with what seems to be a nice resolution to a pretty stressful situation. This guy, Micah, has stolen a lot of money from his mother. But before she worked out who had nicked it, he put a, she put a curse on that person. And then Micah says, oh, sorry, Mum, it was me. And then she undid the curse by blessing him. Now, I... It's a very brief little story there and you wonder just what were the circumstances behind all that but we're not told. And perhaps there's something to be learnt about the character of Micah in this story, maybe. But anyway, it seems to be all resolved and a happy ending. Well, sort of. Verse 3, he returned the money to her and she said, I now dedicate these silver coins to the Lord. That's good. In honour of my son, I will have an image carved and an idol cast. That's not good. Not good at all. She dedicates the money to the Lord and with that money she creates an idol and a carved image. It's like, how on earth is that going to turn out well? But regardless, verses 4 and 5, we read that when he returned the money to his mother, she took 200 silver coins, that's a lot of money, and gave them to a silversmith who made them into an image and an idol, and these were placed in Micah's house. Micah set up a shrine for the idol, and he made a sacred ephod and some household idols, and then he installed one of his sons as his personal priest. Well, that's nice, isn't it? No. It's all totally messed up. If you've had anything to do with what the Bible says about how they were supposed to do worship and things, this is totally messed up. They have disobeyed the way that God should be worshipped. Totally messed it up. See, they, they make their own idols, they set up their own private little temple place, and then Micah gets one of his kids to be his priest. 
which is what only Levites were supposed to do. It's like, really? It's totally messed up. And that is why we read this in verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This is the big problem. And we're going to hear this over and over again in these five chapters. We're told this right now to help us understand why things are so messed up. And we're going to see it in other places as well. And in fact, the very last sentence in the book of Judges is identical to this one. So it kind of almost encloses, brackets, this really messed up bit of the Bible. Because even though they had the Lord as their king, they didn't follow him. They were leaderless because they chose not to believe their leader, not to obey their leader, not to worship their leader. And so they had no religious or moral compass at all. They were completely rudderless. They just made it all up for themselves. And they seemed to pick up bits of other religions alongside the stuff from their own religion and they kind of mash it up. You know, it's a lot like Australia at the moment. Have you thought about that? Most people here have moved on from the God of the Bible. And even people who say, well, I'm a Christian and my God would never say that. Or, that's the stuff from the Old Testament that we don't listen to at all. Jesus was all just about love and take the plank out of your own eye, blah, blah, blah. We should not say that. I, I don't know if you... I, I happen uh, to read the Herald on Wednesday morning. Um, I didn't buy it. I looked at it in the cafe. And the whole second page of the letters column was all about these people telling Christians what the Bible really says. So, oh, well, thank you for that. This is what our nation has become as well. It's kind of like grab a bit of this, grab a bit of that, throw it in the blender and pour it into a glass and this is modern day happy Christianity. But it's nothing like the Bible. And this is what happened in the time of the judges as well. They're just doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. And that's what's happened in this difficult time in the history of God's people. Well, the story continues. Because as we now see it, there's this young Levite man who's been travelling from Bethlehem. And he's looking for somewhere to live. And in his travels, he meets Micah, who then invites him to be his personal priest. Verse 10. Stay here with me, Micah said, and you can be a father and priest to me and I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year plus a change of clothes and your food. And so he ordains this man as his personal priest. Verse, and Micah says, verse 13, I know that the Lord will bless me now because I have a Levite serving as my priest. Oh, this sounds lovely, doesn't it? No, it's all totally messed up. All the Levites were allocated cities with land on it. And they had that so that they would be provided for as they served God's people. He should have stayed where he was. He had a place to live. He had a place from which he could serve God properly. But no, he's wandered far away. Who knows why? There's probably a backstory there as well. And when he's offered the job of being personal priest to Micah in his own little hobby temple... 
He doesn't say, no, 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 that's a bad thing. He says, ha, why the heck not? Yeah, sure, bring it on. This shows you how far it is that they have wandered from the truth. And Micah thinks that because he's got his own little mini pocket temple and his own little personal priest, suddenly he's going to be rich. Everything's going to be good for him. Healthy, wealthy, wise. Basically, he thinks that his invented worship will bring prosperity. You little beauty, I've made up my own little religion and now it's going to be good. This is another problem we see in so many religions today. This kind of idea that if you make a religion, then it will then make life good for you. Right here, right now. And it's come into the Christian faith as well. People think that if you worship God in a particular way, you will receive great prosperity right here and right now. Now, other than the fact that it completely misrepresents God... It's not that harmful in Australia because we've got prosperity already. Really, all of us are rich. It's just, it's offered offer of a bit more rich. But where this is grossly immoral is in places around the world where people are genuinely poor. And the poor people give the money they don't have to make the rich pastors and priests have all more money. You think this is just immoral. They do it because they think if I give the cash, I will get the blessings. And it is an utter distortion of the true word of God. We cannot manipulate God like this. He will always end badly in this life and, of course, in the next. And whilst it seems that Micah's got himself a winning plan right now, it turns out that it's all going to come crashing down around him in a little while. And so we get to the next chapter, Chapter 18, verse 1. We read that in those times, Israel had no king. There's the refrain again, just to note that. And the tribe of Dan was trying to find a place where they could settle, for they had not yet moved into the land assigned to them when the land was divided among the tribes of Israel. Uh, One of the 12 tribes of Israel wanted a place to live, fair enough. And so they began the process of trying to conquer a place to call their home, which is what everyone did much, much earlier on, but these guys mustn't have gotten around to it. So they sent out five spies on their, uh, to go and check this place out, and on their journey they pop in and see Micah. All right, so we've got two different stories, and they're joining up here. And while staying with Micah, they asked his private priest, tell us, is our journey to be successful. Like, are we going to get smashed up by going and finding this place? Or is it going to work well for us? Are we going to get a place to live for all our people? And this guy says, verse 6, Go in peace, the Lord is watching over your journey. Now, it's a bit strange, I thought, that God would actually use this counterfeit priest in this counterfeit temple shrine to actually speak. But God in his kindness and wisdom actually does. And so the news is good for the people of Dan. The news is good for them. So they continue on their journey. They find out the land is lovely and that the people will be really easy to conquer. And so they return home and they tell their people the good news. Verse 9, the men replied, come on, let's attack them. We've seen the land and it's very good. What are you waiting for? 
Don't hesitate to go and take possession of it. When you get there, you will find the people living carefree lives. God has given us a spacious and fertile land lacking in nothing. And it all sounds good, doesn't it? At least for the people of Dan, not so much for the people they're moving into. And so they then decide to send 600 soldiers from their tribe to go and to claim this land. Just 600 soldiers. And on the way, they have a bit of a pit stop at Micah's house. These soldiers have been told about Micah's little personal shrine and his personal priest. And it seems that it's a good idea for them to pop in along the way. Well, what's going to happen? Well, they did more than just pop in to the priest and the shrine. We read verse 16. As the 600 armed warriors from the tribe of Dan stood at the entrance to the gate, the five scouts entered the shrine and removed the carved images, the sacred ephod, the household idols and the cast idol. And meanwhile, the priest was standing at the gate with the 600 armed warriors. And when the priest saw the men carrying all the sacred objects out of Micah's shrine, he said, what are you doing? Shh, be quiet and come with us, they said. Be a father and priest to all of us. Isn't it better to be a priest for an entire tribe and clan of Israel than just the household of one man? Aren't you ambitious? Well, the young priest is quite happy to go with them. So he took along the sacred ephod, the household idols and the carved image. It's a bit bizarre, really, isn't it? Uh, he doesn't have a job anymore at Micah's house because there's no shrine for him and stuff to work with. So he kind of figures, well, you know, may as well go with promotion. And in the meantime, Micah's homemade temple is stolen. Micah, who thinks, I'm going to have such a good life. I've made myself a temple. I've got myself a priest. What could possibly go wrong? Life is good. And so Micah realises his stuff's been nicked and so he sends off a whole bunch of people to try and track down these 600 thieves. And as they're approached by Micah and his little army, they say to him, what's the matter? <laughs> what's the matter? To which Micah says, verse 24, what do you mean, what's the matter? Micah replied, you've taken away all the gods I have made and my priest I have nothing left. Micah has gone from riches to ruin, from blessings to curses. He placed all his trust and confidence in this homemade religion and at the end of the day, it's shown up to be a fraud and he is ruined. This same bloke who stole from his mum, now he is stolen from as well. Well, the people from Dan conquer the people of Laish, destroy their homes, rebuild it, and they call the place Dan. And you think that might be the end of the story, but there's a bit of a twist. And that is we read at the end of this chapter about the impact of that idolatry from Micah, the idolatry that he and his mum established as they made their own homemade shrine. For we read in verse 30 and 31 that then the Danites set up the carved image and they appointed Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, 
the Moses, as their priest. This family continued as priests for the tribe of Dan until the exile. And so Micah's carved image was worshipped by the tribe of Dan as long as the tabernacle of God remained at Shiloh. This little homemade shrine that Micah and his mum set up ends up being the very seed from which the northern tribes of Israel would eventually build an altar that would stand in competition to Jerusalem. And you know when there was that big split after King Solomon's death and they went north and south? Well, the northern group, they needed a place to worship. Where did they worship and with what stuff? This stuff, right there in Dan. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But Micah's sin infected Israel with idolatry. He infected them. And what's more, the guy who's the priest of this rebellious, idolatrous sanctuary was an actual descendant of Moses, the man through whom God gave the law. It's like, oh my goodness, how far have these guys fallen? All the idolatry that we read here came from the slow and gentle act of being wooed by the world away from the truth of God. It's a temptation we all face. We've got a constant pressure to try and domesticate the message of Jesus. And we want to somehow make Jesus' message less controversial. And so we turn it into something that we think will give us more blessing and prosperity as well. And in the end, we just create and worship our own idols. We attempted to create and worship idols. This is what happened when Israel had no king. It did what was right in its own eyes. It desperately needed a king. But now, at this point, everything was utterly messed up. And it's about to get a lot worse. Because as I mentioned earlier, the second half of today's passage is all about immorality. It's confronting and it is tragic. The immorality is confronting and tragic. I've chosen to try and avoid as much of the gruesome detail as possible. But there will still be some things that will shock us. And the story begins in chapter 19 with the story of a Levite man in Ephraim who brought home a woman from Bethlehem to be his concubine. Now, a concubine was kind of like a, a wife, but not quite. Uh, they wouldn't have the normal rights of a wife. And for some reason, he wants her as a concubine, not a wife. We're not really told why. The, the last time a concubine was mentioned in Judges, it went horribly wrong. So... Maybe as we read this, we think, oh dear. Anyway, um, their relationship broke down and she returned to live with her father back in Bethlehem. And four months passed. And eventually, after four months, this Levite decided to go down to Bethlehem to try and persuade his concubine to come back with him. When he arrived in Bethlehem, his father-in-law of sorts welcomed him and he stayed there for five days of feasting. Now, strangely enough, as you read it, 
it seems that the Levite was more excited to have this party with his concubine's dad than it was to even see his concubine. It's a bit weird there. But anyway, parties for five days. And on the afternoon of the fifth day, finally the Levite says to these, his, his father-in-law of sorts, look, I've just got to go. We've got to get home. And so they leave in the afternoon, which is a bad start because they've got a long walk. And they head off home. And when it was night time, they arrived in the town of Gibeah in Benjamin, which was inhabited by fellow Israelites. It's like, well, this is good. We, we haven't quite made it home. We need to stay somewhere along the way. And B&Bs hadn't been invented yet. So we need to find someone who will actually take us in for the night. So they hang around the town square waiting. But nobody helped them. They just left them there. These Benjaminites refused to offer any hospitality, which is kind of weird. Why wouldn't they offer hospitality? Why wouldn't they just say, yeah, come and stay at our place for a night in the spare room when they were the same people as them, the fellow Israelites? Something's weird here. Well, finally, an old man who was from out of town came across the Levite and he offered to have him and his concubine and his servants stay with him. And they enjoyed a pleasant evening together. And we think, all right, well, this might, might be okay. But then there was a loud bang on the door. Verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the house and shouting to the old man, bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. I don't think you probably expected that as we're reading this. In fact, it sort of reminds you of the infamous story in Sodom in the book of Genesis, where it was quite similar. And so in our story here in Judges, we read, verse 23, that the old man whose house it was stepped outside to talk to them. He said, no, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. For this man is a guest in my house, and such a thing would be shameful. I think, ah, oh, this is good. We've actually got someone who's going to stand up for what is right and going to defend this man. And you'd hope that the troublemakers would say, you know, you're right. That was a bad idea. We might just go away and just we'll pretend this never happened. But instead, the man who owned the house offered these troublemakers an alternative to satisfy their desires. He offered them his daughter and the Levite's concubine as a substitute. This is the guy who said that the alternative was evil and shameful and it's like, well, this is less evil and less shameful. It's like... This is totally messed up. The troublemakers say, no thanks. We still want the Levite. And so the Levite grabs his concubine, pushes her out the door and says, have her. This is mind-blowingly immoral. And it's right here in the Bible and it's part of the horrible history of God's people right here. 
You think, what on earth has happened to God's people? What happened to the Ten Commandments? What happened to loving your neighbour? What happened to all this stuff that, how could it turn out so messed up? A Levite, who's kind of supposed to be the priest guy, what does he do? He offers this unspeakable exchange and they accept it. And by the end of the night, she appears to be dead. And the Levite took her body back to his home in Ephraim. And when he arrived, he didn't bury her, but instead used her remains to send a gruesome message to each of the 12 tribes of Israel to stir them up to justice. It messed up. And this is the response. Everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up? And they were roused into united action. And so chapter 20, verse 1, we read that all the Israelites were united as one man from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, including those from across the Jordan in the land of Gilead, the entire community assembled in the presence of the Lord at Mitzpah. And they go there so that they can hear from the Levite just what happened. God's people united to bring justice. So what does he say? Well, as he is telling them the gruesome details, he changes the story a bit. He distorts the events. He says that the troublemakers who came to see him and knocked on the door were in fact leading citizens of Gibeah, like the, the, the people you should trust. And that he says that it was all about coming to kill him. And because he said that it's the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin, it makes everybody else in Israel even more hungry for justice. Now, all the people that were gathered there were shocked by these events and they wanted to bring justice to the crime. That's good. I mean, at least they have not given up on some sense of right and wrong. But the way in which the Levite has spun the story, it's as though he was innocent. But he didn't protect his concubine. He treated her like an animal. And to try and avoid any punishment himself, he doctors the story so that he would appear the victim. The Levite claimed to be the victim. Can you believe it? It is all very, very messed up. But the people of God are aroused for justice and they plan to punish the perpetrators from this tribe of Benjamin. And so verses 12, 13, the Israelites sent messages to the tribe of Benjamin saying, what a terrible thing has been done among you. Give up those evil men, those troublemakers from Gibeah, so we can execute them and purge Israel of this evil. But the people of Benjamin would not listen. So what's going to happen? Well, the other 11 tribes decide that they will attack Benjamin and bring justice they will attack one of their own 
tribes. This is not like the other battles in the book of Judges. This is civil war. Civil war erupts. This is mate against mate, state against state, tribe against tribe. And you've got to wonder what side is God going to be on in all of this? His own people are fighting amongst themselves. This blame on both sides, a corrupt Levite and the Benjaminites who have done this appalling thing. But with all of this in mind, the combined Israel forces decide to attack the Benjaminites. They've made that decision themselves. We're going to do this. But they say we only want to send one tribe at this stage. And so having made up their mind to attack, they, verse 18, we read that before the battle, the Israelites went up to Bethel and asked God, which tribe should go to first attack the people of Benjamin? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go first. All God does is answer their specific question. He doesn't say, Send up Judah and you will win. Not at all. There's no guarantee of their success. He, he hasn't been asked as to whether or not they should go and fight. All they ask is, who should we send? And he says, Judah. And they go to battle and the Benjaminites win. And they kill 22,000 soldiers in one day. It's a slaughter. And the next day, the shattered men regrouped because they had renewed energy because, verse 23, we read that they had gone up that night before and, and wept in the presence of the Lord until evening. They'd asked the Lord, should we fight against our relatives from Benjamin again? And the Lord said, go out and fight against them, as you will. It's almost like they wanted God to say, no, you can stop now. But instead the Lord said, no, Keep doing what you started, you wanted to do. And this time, 18,000 people were killed on day two. And the immoral Benjaminites are unpunished. Then after that second day of slaughter, we read verse 26, that all the Israelites went up to Bethel and wept in the presence of the Lord and fasted till evening. They also brought burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites asked the Lord, should we fight against our relatives from Benjamin again or should we stop? And the Lord said, go, tomorrow I will hand them over to you. And so he did. And thousands and thousands of Benjamin's warriors died, leaving only 600 men. All the other men, women and children from the tribe of Benjamin were killed in this horrible civil war. It's absolute overkill. It's a completely disproportionate response. I mean, sure, the first thing was a shocker, but 50, 40, 60, how many thousand? Lots of, this is a disaster. Everything is utterly messed up. And you'd think there's no hope. And just as if it could not get any worse, it turns out that all of those Israelites had made a promise that they would not let any of, a, a solemn vow that they would not let any of their women from the 11 tribes marry the Benjaminite guys. And so they've got a problem. They've got 600 men and no one for them to carry on the generation of the Benjaminites. 
And so they come up with a plan, a plan to provide 600 wives for these 600 men so that the tribe might not become extinct. Maybe they should have thought about that a bit earlier. And without going into all the details, there was more bloodshed and more abuse of women. But at least the tribe of Benjamin is preserved. Everything is utterly, utterly messed up. Almost everything that we've witnessed in these five chapters of Judges is immoral and horrific. And I tell you what, if I was in God's shoes, I would say, just nuke the lot of you. This is just ridiculous. You guys have come so far away from following me, you've made up everything on your own, and this is the utter chaos and carnage. Off you go. You'd think that God would leave them completely to their sin and let them destroy themselves. And he'd have every reason to do so. But God didn't leave them. He didn't forsake them. And so the very last two verses of Judges say this. Then the people of Israel departed by tribes and families and they returned to their own homes. In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Yes, they did. Is there any hope in those verses? Well, our translation rightly says that they returned to their own homes. Another version is a little bit more literal than that. It actually says they returned each to his own inheritance. And the word inheritance is important because the word inheritance reminds us of God's faithfulness. Their inheritance shows God's faithfulness. You see, everything they have has been given to them from God. And they acknowledge that. And the fact that there's no king shows us that they're missing something very important that actually will fix things up if they get one. And so if they can get one, you'd think there's hope. If they had a king to lead them, then maybe they would no longer do what was right in their own eyes. They might do what was right in God's king's eyes. And that is the hope that we have as this sordid book of Judges comes to a close. If you were reading through the book of Judges in our Christian Bibles, you'd turn over the page and you'd come to a book called Ruth. Ruth was written in the time of the Judges. And in this we read a story about a woman who would end up being the great-grandmother of King David. There is hope because this King David would have descendants and one of those descendants would be King Jesus. There is hope for God's people. Do they deserve it? Not for a second. They were utterly messed up and yet there was hope. You know, sometimes I wish that God's word was a, a bit more photoshopped, really. It'd be kind of nice if you could take out the blemishes. You know, it's like that, that famous quote when someone 400 years ago was getting his portrait painted. He said, paint me warts and all. Kind of think, well, we've got in the Bible here the warts and all of God's people. Lord, couldn't you just skip this bit of history? Can we just 
sweep this under the carpet. We don't really like what we hear. And surely we don't need to know this. But we do. Because it happened. And we understand through this more about our heritage and more about God's mercy. Again, we learn that our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. And I've got to say that as I reflect on judges and I see how messed up they are, that I'm thankful to God that he loved them and was faithful to them. Because when I look deep in my heart and I see my own sin and my failures and the times when I have I've, I've disappointed God and others, I know that he continues to be faithful to me because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a word of great comfort to us all. This has been a really hard part of the Bible. And if you haven't heard many sermons in the church, you might be thinking, are they all like this? They're not. This is a really tough one. But it's good to read the Bible and it's good for us to know this bit of our messed up history. Because even though God's people keep failing him, he remains faithful. And although our sins are many, his mercy is more. Let me pray. Lord, we are disturbed by this part of the Bible and we're disturbed at the way that your people were so messed up. But we thank you, Father, that you've given it to us as a warning and also a reminder of your mercy. And we thank you above all that in Christ we have a king who is good, a king who is trustworthy, king who will lead us away from this mess and give us mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name.